0: Nitobi Inasso had a goal when he sat down to write his book. He wanted to explain Japanese culture. Specifically, he wanted to explain Japanese culture to his Western friends. Nitobi Inasso was born in Japan in 1862, but at the age of 22, he left his home country to live and travel in the United States and Europe. He came to understand these other countries well, but he found that his Western colleagues and friends didn't quite understand Japan. He told the story of one such misunderstanding in the introduction to his book. He was taking a walk one day in Belgium with a noted Belgian jurist.
1: And the jurist was stunned to hear that in Japan there was no mandatory religious education in the schools. And he said, you know, how can that be? Do you people have no morals or no sense of of moral education?
0: Natobe was surprised by this question.
1: He, of course, learned morality as a child and a young man.
0: So he decided to write a book to explain the moral basis of Japanese society.
1: And he said that he thought that the best way of conceiving of that was through the prism of the way of the warrior Bushido.
0: In 1900, Nitobe published Bushido, The Soul of Japan. In the book, he explained the moral foundations of traditional Japanese society, and he used samurai ethics to do it. This made a certain kind of sense, As Nitobe was a samurai by birth.
1: His father was a retainer of the Nambu domain, a sort of semi-autonomous domain in the northeastern part of the main island of Honshu. But the Tokugawa period in which he was born ended in 1868, and soon thereafter, samurai as a kind of social status category disappeared. So although Nitobe was a samurai, he was only a samurai for the first few years of his life, technically speaking.
0: When he was a young man, Nitobe was sent north to the island of Hokkaido, which was Japan's agricultural frontier at the time. He studied at the Sapporo Agricultural College, and while there, he converted to Episcopalian Christianity. In 1884, he moved to the United States and enrolled at Johns Hopkins University, where he studied agriculture and economics. While in the United States, Nitobe converted again. This time, he converted to Quakerism, a kind of Christianity that values nonviolence. But even as a Quaker, he believed the warrior ethic to be a valuable one. It's so interesting that a Quaker,
1: a Japanese Quaker writing for an English language audience, would be talking about the way of the warrior in the first place as his way of explaining Japanese society.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about books that change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk to one of the world's leading scholars about the impact one book had. In this episode, I spoke with Harvard history professor David Howell about Bushido, The Soul of Japan, a 19th century book that introduced traditional Japanese morals to a Western audience for the first time. So why did Natobe, a Quaker, want to write a book about the samurai? In the book,
1: he says that um, his wife's and uh, other acquaintances' questions about basically what's the story with Japan, what makes you people tick,
0: were a big inspiration. Bushido was a major part of the answer, but it wasn't the only one. The book also talks about Buddhism, Confucianism, and the native Japanese religion of Shinto.
1: And so the picture he paints through the book sort of tacks back and forth between general moral principles that presumably were held by people throughout Japan, and then other things that were more particularly connected to the samurai class whom he presents as the exemplars of
0: this moral behavior and ethical thought. The text is organized as a long essay, around 120 pages.
1: It's not divided up into chapters so much as uh, sort of section headings with um, big concepts, uh, love, rectitude, morality, uh, loyalty, uh, things of that sort. Uh, and then he's got other sort of um, added sections about uh, the place of women, the current state of Bushido that is current in uh, around 1899-1900, uh, the future of Bushido looking forward. Uh, but the main bulk of the text is a series of discussions of various keywords about what is Bushido, what are the main ethical principles.
0: What is the best translation for Bushido? The conventional translation
1: nowadays is the way of the warrior. And it is a a reasonable translation. Bushi means um, a warrior, and do is the way, and so bushido, the way of the warrior, is how it's almost always translated. He actually starts with the term chivalry, and I think one of his starting points was thinking that his readers would not think that there were ideas about chivalry in the kind of you know medieval European knight sense of the term in Japan. And so he says that actually, yes, we do have our idea of chivalry, and that is bushido.
0: What is the way of the warrior then? Uh, You mentioned a couple of virtues that it's associated with. Is that how he defines it as a, a kind of collection of virtues? Yeah,
1: I think that's a fair way of putting it. He sees it as partly a way of comportment that a man who is practicing bushido Or I should correct myself, because it's not something that one self-consciously practices, but it's something that learning and growing and being part of this ethical world, one is supposed to naturally have. Not everyone lives up to the standard, but ideally it's something that that one doesn't need to be too self-conscious about, but behaves with rectitude and honor, puts his duties, whether it's to his Lord or his responsibility to be benevolent to those who are uh, weaker than he is before his own selfish desires, but also has a sense of pride. But pride is a a funny concept because if you're too proud, that can be counterproductive. It can be kind of narcissistic. So he doesn't want people to be proud in that way, but self-conscious about how those around them see them. And there, I think one of the really interesting terms that he brings out is honor. And the idea that Japan is a culture that takes honor very seriously, is very worried about shame, bringing shame onto oneself or onto one's house. And the idea that it's better to, even if it's against your own personal self interest, to act in a way that won't cause you to lose face or, you know, besmirch your name. And I think actually those are ideas that in the context of you know, the Victorian age, that the Ladies and gentlemen whom he envisioned as his readers would have, have understood, maybe more than we do
0: nowadays. So is Natobe saying these are the values that characterize the warrior ethic, or is he advocating for these to be applied in any situation? Like, are these, is he saying that these are qualities everyone should aspire to?
1: I don't read him as advocating that others adopt Bushido. I think he sees himself as explaining a worldview to others. In his explanations of bushido in the context of Japanese history and society, he is a little bit cagey in that, on the one hand, it is the ethic of the samurai class, uh, who made up maybe you know six percent of the Japanese population at the time of the fall of the Tokugawa regime in 1868, but he also and he calls it the soul of Japan, not the soul of a small portion of Japanese society. So he does want his readers to think that it characterizes the particular characteristics of Japan. He doesn't talk about China or other East Asian countries, but uh, he would have been keenly aware that people were sort of lumping all of East Asians and beyond into the general category of Oriental. And so I think he wanted to find a way to sort of pull Japan out of that mix and have his readers see it as a unique and certainly special culture and
0: society. Nitobe understood how his Western readers saw Japan and how Japanese people saw Christians like him.
1: I think probably in his mind, and it comes out here and there a little bit in the book, is a keen awareness that Japan is not now and, as he could see, very unlikely ever to become a Christian nation. There were critiques of Japanese Christians within Japan saying that they couldn't be loyal to the modern Japanese state headed by the emperor if they had these divided loyalties. How can you serve God ahead of your sovereign? And he argues that actually there is no contradiction. But I think he's very aware of that, that he's an unusual Japanese person for being a Christian. And I think he's probably keenly aware that many of his readers will sort of automatically heavily discount the virtues of any society if it's not christian and shows no interest in becoming christian
0: so by the end of it the reader has learned about what nitobe sees as kind of core values of japanese life are there any aspects to the text that are kind of notable
1: yes i think he does a really interesting job of taking things from japanese literature and japanese history that would seem bizarre to his readers and explaining them in a way that makes sense. There's a very famous story from the medieval war tale, the tale of the Heike, uh, which was passed down as a kind of oral tale that he relates in which a middle-aged warrior and his opponent are facing off on the field of battle. The older man has sort of vanquished the younger one, but has no blood has been shed yet. He pulls off his opponent's helmet and sees that his opponent is this adolescent boy, maybe 14, 15 years old. And he feels really bad because his duty at this point is to cut off the boy's head and take it back as a kind of trophy. But the trophy aspect of it makes sense only if the opponent is somebody of higher rank or of noted valor as a warrior. So there isn't much for him to gain by killing someone who's much younger and much weaker than he is, though he does realize that the boy is of high rank and so actually there is some incentive there, but he tells the guy, no, no, run away. The rest of my army isn't here yet, no one will know, it's fine, but the boy insists that his head be cut off, that it would bring dishonor to him if he were not duly decapitated at this point. And so he does it and duly takes the head and is duly recognized for his achievement but then renounces his practice as a warrior.
0: At the end of the story, the older samurai is filled with remorse. He's not guilty. He knows that he had to kill the boy, but he's so upset that he had to do it that he leaves the military and becomes a monk.
1: It's kind of a strange story, sad story. Why would the young man be so insistent that the older man kill him when he has a chance to to run away without any kind of public dishonor? But Nitobe uses that to argue for the deeply ingrained sense of honor on the adolescent's part and benevolence and mercy on his opponent's part gets no pleasure from killing this boy, even though he's a professional warrior. He's killed many people. But they come to a kind of understanding between them that the best result for both of their sakes is for him to kill the boy, and so he does. I think the way that he walks... The reader through the story is is really interesting. It makes it compelling. It takes something that seems like a very strange and inexplicable anecdote and makes it noble somehow, which was what the
0: tellers of the tale of Heike were no doubt hoping for. The story might have been hard for Natobe's readers to understand, but American readers had their own stories of sacrifice, whether they were stories of knights charging into battle or the Christian story of Jesus, the Son of God, sacrificing himself on the cross. So he does like to come back and say, you know, we're not
1: really all that different after all. We we frame things differently, but behaving honorably
0: is something that we understand and you understand. I guess what's interesting is when I was first thinking about you know, the way of a warrior, well, in some senses, you think of it's precisely not honorable. I mean, they're killing machines. And yet it seems like many cultures have tried to rein in, you know, the the impulse of utter destruction with codes, cultures, stories, etc., so that, you know, there's some constraint. And that seems to be partly what this is. This is not how to be the greatest killing machine. This is a culture of ethical warrior.
1: Yes, that's a very good point. And as I said earlier, technically he was a samurai, but never had any kind of traditional military training. He never served in the military himself in Japan or elsewhere. And his... Codification or his explanation of the way of the warrior is interesting, also because uh, during the time, you know, when the samurai really did run Japan, uh, there was no sort of set of precepts that correspond to a way of the warrior. There were some people who wrote about it and thought about it, and then the actual behavior of Japanese samurai when they did engage in battle uh, was often far below the lofty standard that Nitobe portrays. Even in the medieval era, when he talks about you know, these two men facing off one-on-one, deciding whether they're worthy of being opponents or not, that kind of thing just didn't happen. Or if it did happen, uh, it happened after people were shooting at each other with with arrows from far away, and then when we got close enough so that the only thing they could do is hand-to-hand battle, then maybe they would chat before fighting each other, but, but in general, the idea of war was to kill the other guy, uh, take the territory or whatever it is that you're after. And It's only after Japan becomes peaceful, after a long period of civil war in the 17th century, that you see the first efforts to sort of codify a way of the warrior, written often by men who themselves were samurai in, in social class. Uh, but had never fought in a battle, and never would fight in a battle, and writings about the way of the warrior were often almost kind of like elegies for a bygone
0: way of life. well it doesn 't seem that surprising to me that I think part of the romantic movement was a kind of longing for a heroic age, and so Western romantic poetry and paintings often do figure of the night. Yeah. So it seems of a piece of this kind of same impulse. He was a
1: man of his times, um, and was, as I've already said, you know, extremely cosmopolitan. Uh, so yes, of course, it it totally figures.
0: The book was an immediate hit and attracted some high profile readers, including American President Theodore Roosevelt.
1: The first copy that Roosevelt got was actually given to him by a Japanese man, Kaneko Kentaro, who became an important government official, a jurist, kind of a legal scholar, uh, who was the first Japanese person to attend Harvard and was part of the class of 1878. Roosevelt himself was part of the class of 1880. Apparently, the two didn't know each other while they were at Harvard, but were introduced later on. Uh, And so Kaneko sent Roosevelt a copy of Bushido and some other books introducing Japan to Roosevelt. Roosevelt read it and was greatly impressed. This is around 1904. And the story is that he ordered 60 copies of Bushido and then distributed them to friends and family. Apparently, Roosevelt also um, took up sumo wrestling
0: and would have, like, sumo matches (laughs) in the White House. Something else happened to drive Bushido's success. In 1904 and 1905, the Japanese were fighting in the Russo-Japanese War.
1: No one, maybe not even the Japanese government itself, really
0: expected Japan to win that war. But Japan did win, decisively.
1: The victory in the Russo-Japanese War put Japan on the map, so to speak, for Western observers, but it was also hugely influential in other places as well. In Cairo, when news of the victory came, uh, there were rumors going around, Sort of intellectuals in Cairo who were, of course, Muslims, but also influenced by French and other European thought, and rumors went around that the Emperor of Japan was about to convert to Islam, and then Japan would become the beacon of Islam in the East. Uh, That did not happen, but um, still, it gives you a sense of the great excitement. The Japanese victory in the Russo-Japanese War caused all this excitement because it was the first time an Asian country had beaten a European country in war. And it came also 10 years after the Japanese had beaten the much bigger and uh, on paper, more powerful. Chinese in the Sino-Japanese war but really the idea of a East Asian country beating a European one of the great European powers was just beyond belief
0: for people. Japan was already on the minds of many Europeans and Americans at this point, but not for its political power. So in the latter part of the 19th century there was a lot of interest in
1: Japanese culture and and visual culture and things like that in the 1870s and 1880s and beyond in Western art there was the Japanese movement Van Gogh and many Monet and many other uh, Western artists were impressed by Japanese ukiyo-e prints and things like that. So there was a great fascination with Japan in the world of art and aesthetics. Okakura Kakuzo, another very cosmopolitan Japanese writer, wrote the Book of Tea in English for a Western audience and helped to introduce Japanese aesthetics. And he also sort of helped to invent the idea of art history in Japan. But the idea of Japan as a power, an international power, was still relatively new at the beginning of the 20th century. Japan got treaty equality with the Western powers only in 1899. In 1902, the British and the Japanese signed the Anglo-Japanese alliance. Again, the first military alliance between a non-European or non-Western power and a Western power, Britain in this case. And I think Bushido helped in some ways to sort of change the conversation, you know, from Japan as the land of exotic art and sort of beautiful woodblock prints and you know, the exotic orient to something much more formidable, closer in many ways to the West, a Western power in its own right, an industrializing power in its own right. It didn't start interest in Japan, but I think it changed the the tenor of interests in Japan.
0: These political and military achievements shifted the view of Japan from a fascinating but inconsequential foreign land to an impressive player on the world stage. Bushido helped accelerate this shift. But in Japan, not everyone loved the book.
1: When it was finally translated into Japanese in 1908, it got very mixed views in Japan itself. Uh, Some people liked it, others thought it was fine, but it was know, a superficial view for Western consumption. And then some people were really angry because it not just downplayed, but basically ignored the imperial institution. And this is a time when in Japan, it's the beginning of a new kind of nationalism focused on the emperor and the imperial institution. Still relatively new, actually, in Japan itself. Uh, And so some of those folks, the more nationalist folks, were angry with And suspicious of him anyway because he was a Christian. So it was one of those things that was more popular away from Japan than in Japan itself.
0: Bushido continued to influence the way Europeans and North Americans saw Japan for decades, especially in war. Even during
1: the World War II period, the willingness of Japanese troops uh, to die rather than surrender, uh, things like the so-called kamikaze... Uh, pilots who would crash their planes into American or other uh, naval vessels. sort of Suicide missions was extremely shocking at the time. Unfortunately, in the last couple of decades, we've gotten used to that kind of thing. But until fairly recently, the idea of deliberately committing suicide as part of a a mission like that with no hope whatsoever of survival uh, was quite shocking. And I think there was a tendency to attribute that to a kind of uh, Bushido gone bad ethos in the modern and contemporary world. There's no doubt that Western popular understandings of traditional Japanese society remain influenced by the idea of the way of the warrior. I can't be entirely critical because it's it's that that draws some of my students into my classes. They're um, impressed by the the willingness for self sacrifice and the you know, high moral and ethical standards that they think, characterized the samurai historically. And so I, in my teaching, I try to work with that, but also sort of let them down gently that, that real life was rather more complicated.
0: Many Americans get their ideas about samurai from popular culture. In the early years of the comedy sketch show Saturday Night Live, the actor John Belushi had a set of sketches in which he played a samurai with a contemporary American job, like being a hotel clerk.
1: He commits some small error and then, and was ready to commit suicide to make amends for that. Uh, the first book I read about Japan that I can remember was *Shogun*, published in 1975. hugely hugely popular as a book and as a miniseries and a movie. I haven't reread that book in a long time, but my memory of it was a kind of over the top bushido influenced view that. Um, loyal retainers looked forward to the day when they would be able to commit suicide or otherwise die for their lord. I've since learned that, that I mean, it's just a novel, very entertaining, but
0: not to be taken too seriously. And then there was the 2003 American movie, The Last Samurai. The movie is set in the 1870s, and in it, Tom Cruise plays a U.S. Army captain who is sent to Japan. He begins to train the Japanese Imperial Army to fight against a samurai-led rebellion, but he later abandons the imperial army and joins the samurai. In the end, Tom Cruise's character convinces the emperor that the samurai were right all along and that he should remember the country's traditions. I remember when that film came out, I was
1: a participant in various listservs and things like that. And many of my colleagues uh, who are specialists in Japanese history were upset about some of the historical infelicities Nowadays, we talk about whitewashing and the white savior complex, uh, and the idea that a white man like Tom Cruise would come and save the Japanese from themselves uh, seems insulting as well as unlikely. But in Japan, the movie was actually pretty popular, and people didn't worry too much about that stuff. I think ordinary viewers in Japan felt that Japanese culture and the behavior of the Japanese in the movie was portrayed in a positive way. They were honorable men acting honorably. And if Tom Cruise was necessary to bring the crowds in, then that's fine, whatever. (laughs) I think it's the attitude of most people. But there's some over-the-top stuff that I think ultimately can be traced back to the influence of Bushido. Maybe more the influence of people who have heard of Bushido but haven't actually read the book. (laughs) But that's often the case with many important books, I think.
0: A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I mean, one way to read that film in my memory is that you have a kind of dissolute useless industrialized American who is actually rejuvenated by integrating values from Japanese culture traditional values so in some ways the appeal of Bushido is in the figure of someone like Tom Cruise where like he needs these ethical and moral guidelines to be whole yeah he
1: does he becomes in a kind of loser and goes out in glory as a winner because he has learned to embody these ethics. And we see that a lot in various iterations, whether it's Bushido per se or Zen Buddhism or other sorts of things. It's it's complicated because uh, it sort of reduces the East into a kind of caricature, but it is uh, an enduring an enduring trope, I think.
0: I hadn't considered it now, but I, I wonder if Part of the appeal of Bushido for Western, or, you know, for anyone, sounds like this is a global phenomenon, is it takes some of the best qualities of maybe um, traditional Asian philosophical traditions, um, Buddhism and Confucianism and and, and kind of family devotion, and marries it to um, an ethic of action and glory. And like trying to resolve those tensions of like, self-renunciation and kind of strict adherence to an ethical code along with you know, like the dynamism of a warrior do you think there's something to that can you see that maybe that's part of the appeal yeah i think uh
1: that's a that's a very interesting point so the various ways of attaining this kind of uh, rectitude and sort of renunciation of, of worldly things but you know one major way is to leave society entirely maybe shave your head and go up and live as a hermit in the mountains which is not something that most people would want to do and so i think yes the way of having that kind of control over yourself while also being a participant in society contributing to society however it's configured around you and you know being willing to die if that's what's called for but not and nietzsche says this frequently that saying that there's glory in death and then just sort of you know running out with your sword waving is not an honorable death. You live when you need to live. And then when it's time to die, then you die and you do it, you face up to what you need to do. But it's not just you know death for its own sake or death for some kind of trumped up glory, but it's the necessary result of these other factors relating to your place in the world. And so, yeah, I think that it is appealing, the idea of of having a higher purpose uh, while also being you know, a contributing member of of society, having that kind of control agency over yourself. You're not just at the whims of others or you know, supernatural forces, but it's really up to you.
0: That, that is appealing, I think. Does this book still matter today? Should people still read it? Um, does it still have something to say to us? That's a very interesting question.
1: As a historian, I'm trained to think in terms of contextualizing things to fighting against essentialism. And so, you know, my instinct for a book like that is to note, you know, how much after the Age of the Samurai, which it was written, how it would have struck probably readers if it could have been taken back 100 or 200 years as this bizarre thing that they may not have recognized as a as an accurate description. Many things they would have recognized, but in its whole, they might have thought that it was a a very strange portrayal of their society. So in that sense, I don't want people to read it and say, okay, now I get Japan uh, any more than you might want to read Dickens and say, now, oh, I get contemporary U.S. society. There are connections, but it's, it's, it's a long way. But I think as a way of thinking about issues like cosmopolitanism, about dialogue between belief systems that on their surface seem to be quite opposed or, or quite far apart, a kind of respectful dissent to the Eurocentrism that Nitobe encountered around him. It's not pedantic. It, I mean, it's very learned, but not pedantic. It's not fighting back against uh, Eurocentrism, but it is a critique of it. and so. In that sense, I, I would like people to continue to read it today.
0: RIT Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. RIT Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.